Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Really excited for today's guest. He's been requested several times. So he attended Pepperdine University. He's played over 13 years of professional volleyball, which includes 11 pro clubs, where he's a two-time Brazilian champion, two-time champion of China. He's also won championships in Germany, Italy, and Austria. He's been on our national team since 2003. He's an Olympian. He was our captain. Please welcome to the show, Fred Winters. Fred, thanks for doing this. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me on. So, Fred, one cool thing I found when I was doing some research for the show is during the Olympics, somebody did an article about the Vancouver Island, and they talked about, like, Jamie Broder, Shanice, Martin Reeder, uh, Houdson, yourself. Was volleyball always, like, a preferred sport on Vancouver Island, or when you were growing up, did you did you play other sports? Was something else your passion before you found volleyball? Oh, yeah, I played, I played a lot of other sports. I think, just going back to the island, I think, yeah, there was a real, it was... My year in particular, a couple of years before me, a couple of years after me, and in, in, in graduation year, I guess, was really strong on the island for volleyball. I don't know how it is now, but uh, yeah, we had really strong teams in Victoria. We had really good club teams with great club coaches that were motivated and, and encouraged us to get involved with playing volleyball. And uh, even up island, we had really strong teams too. Like The, the island players list is long. And uh, not necessarily all guys who made the national team, but really good beach players and really good uh, indoor university players. So it was cool. It was definitely a, a hotbed when I was growing up, but I don't know what it's like anymore. And what was your recruiting process like? Because I think the NCAA, I'm not sure if they were looking at Canada too much during your era. Like you were maybe one of the only Canadians playing, at least in the yeah. West, where it was yeah, a battle, there right? Was like a... Okay, so there was the forgotten talent, the long-lost talent of uh, volleyball in BC. Not too many people remember him, but his name was Dustin McCappen. And he was, I think he was a year older than me, but he was like six foot eight, long, athletic guy who could pass and jump and had awesome ball control. So he went down to a, he got a scholarship to Long Beach State. A year before me, so he was down there. He just fizzled out at school, I think. It wasn't, like, the right fit for him. Um, but he was, like, he had national team potential, and then he just fizzled out. But, yeah, like, when I was down in the NCAA, I don't think. There were a couple guys back east, like Matty Z, I think, was at IPFW. Uh, Sean Powell was at George Mason. I can't think of the other guys, but yeah, there weren't too many Canadians going D1. I don't know if it was because uh, CIS was strong and didn't feel need or just universities didn't recruit up in Canada, but uh, my, my process was pretty good. I went down with uh, my volleyball club a couple times. Uh, to play in club tournaments, and that's how they saw me. It's not like they came up to Canada to watch uh, watch me play. And that was like, uh, give a lot of credit to Sharon Carter of White Rock Volleyball Club. She was had good relationships with the with the university coaches down there. We always took a, an all star team from uh, White Rock Volleyball Club down, and uh, yeah, I got noticed. And then during my recruitment. Visit. Uh, so basically, NCAA men's volleyball, they only have four and a half scholarships, right? So they they have to spread it around. And these are expensive schools to go to, especially for international or out-of-state students. And uh, my mom was meeting with Marv Dunphy about my future and how viable it was I could go to Pepperdine because they wanted me to go there. And she just said, oh, well, if you want them to go, you got to pay for it. <laughs> so she uh, she pretty much bartered me into getting a full scholarship, which I know when I was there is, is not super common to get a full ride, uh, just because of the nature of the scholarship allotment. They're usually splitting them up, you know, giving a guy a half ride or a quarter, something like that. So, so my mom really helped me out with that one, helped herself out too. Wow, yeah, that that's huge. So yeah. With Pepperdine, obviously, BC is beautiful, and anyone who's ever been to the island, like, obviously, it's beautiful, but what was your first impression of that Pepperdine campus, right? Because I think it's right in Malibu, isn't it? Yeah, so it's up on the cliff in Malibu, uh, overlooking the ocean, 
my mom tells the story better than me, but you know, we drove down, we drove a, a car full of my stuff down. I was only 17 before I, well, when I started university and, uh, it was just a real eye opening experience. I mean, it, it was tough for my mom. It was awesome for me. I was just itching to get out of the car and go. Um, but at the same time, you know, it was, it was a little bit weird, new country, you know, being the Canadian guy, it's like, I don't want to say you have a target on your back, but you know, everyone, everyone knows and can tell you're Canadian. And, uh, I mean, but pulling up, I, I can't think of a better place to go to school. I mean, I, I wish I went to a, a school that had a football team just for the party atmosphere and just the whole, you know, like crazy fans and, and tailgating and all that kind of stuff. But Pepperdine is a, a nice little, nice little enclave on the cliff there, and a safe haven and really great people there. And uh, I can't, can't say enough good things about that school. Yeah. What can you tell us about uh, the legendary coach, Marv Dumphy? What was, what were some things you learned from him at your time and what makes him so great that he's got this long running reputation that he's earned? Yeah, I think he's uh, he's his own he's his own style. He has his own unique style. I think he's most coaches. You know, you want them to change and evolve, and and I think he's just been doing going with what works. You know, I went to university so long ago that I could be totally off on my analysis of him. Like, <laughs> you know, he could have totally changed and 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 developed and playing New Age volleyball, but. You know, he he's a real, real good charmer. He's a really good people person. He makes you feel good. He, he's not a rah-rah guy, but, uh, you know, he'll, he'll sit you down or he'll, he'll tap you on the shoulder and, and give you a line like, hey, I thought that was a really good move you just did there. <laughs> and look you in the eyes and just be really serious about it. And uh, that, that, you know, makes you feel really good. And... Uh, Obviously, he's a great uh, assessor of talent because he wanted me to go there, and uh, <laughs> he uh, he just doesn't have an enemy. He's got no one, no one who dislikes him. He's a big jump high, swing hard guy. He was really into teaching blocking. I think Pepperdine always has a really, really good blocking team. I mean, he he can break down the game of volleyball like anyone in his office. He just sits there and watches film for hours. Another thing I really liked about him is he's not afraid to get input from his from his players. Even at the university level, like even pro pro coaches have a hard time doing this, but he'll he'll bring you into his office and he'll ask, you know, what what do you think we should do about this guy or this guy? How should we stop this or what's going on with our our past defense or side out isn't working as well as it should be. And he'll, he'll take your input. He'll hear your input. I don't know if he's going to use it or, <laughs> but he has a famous, famous line. You know, he'll always say after a meeting is concluded, he said, I think we're good here. And, uh, then, you know, it's your time to get up and leave. <laughs> um, but yeah, he's a, he's a really great guy. Uh, still calls me two or three times a year just to keep in touch. Always ask about my family. He's just, he's just a really good guy. Good PR guy too. Nice. Nice. Good to hear that. So uh, obviously this, this is a little while ago. I'm not sure if you heard the same rumors. We've had other guests on the show who went to the NCAA and they've never been confronted with this, but they heard the rumor existed at one point where if you went to the NCAA, you were going to be in trouble to be a part of the national team. Now, did you ever hear this rumor? Did you ever feel it? Like, Help me out with the timeline. When did you become a member of the national team? I believe you're still in university, right? Yeah, so I joined the team in 2003. Uh, that was my first summer at the team, and I got to play on the senior men's team right away and uh, go to some pretty cool events. So, uh, yeah, I was a, I was um, going into my senior year of university, and uh, I made the team that summer before the senior team of, my, of university or senior year of university. And uh, I, I had heard that too before when I was going to, going to university. But I, back then, you know, like we didn't have access to 
national team players. Like I didn't, I didn't follow the national team so much. Like if I happened to be watching TV and in the summer and there was world league on, like it was the greatest thing ever. You, you just didn't see it. There was YouTube clips and stuff didn't exist. So I didn't know much about any of the national team athletes. So I didn't care that there was this rumor about that. Like <laughs> I was getting the full ride to Pepperdine. Like, uh, to be honest, I didn't give a shit if, about the national team when I was, you know, first, second year university. Right. So then uh, I think that was a Garth Pischke thing. He, he was the national team coach before uh, Stelio. Stelio Duraco was my first coach. And I tell you what, he didn't give a, give a shit either about the NCAA. He was going to take the best players, the guys he, he wanted on the team the most, you know? So when I made the team, he was the coach. So I, I wasn't affected at all by that or, or scared or deterred. But yeah, my first summer on the national team was pretty sweet because we went to the Pan Am Games in Santo Domingo and we went to um, World Cup in November. And so I think our semester at Pepperdine is like 12 or 13 weeks, uh, like the fall semester there. And I missed six weeks of it because I was with traveling with the national team to Japan I had to go back up to Winnipeg for training before that 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 yeah it was it was a pretty cool uh cool time for me to be on the national team I was super stoked I was playing with all these guys who were playing pro <laughs> still in university I had to do I had to do work while I was in Japan <laughs> for my classes it was crazy so just to build on your earlier point that it was a little bit harder to follow just because of social media and YouTube wasn't really a thing there. So when you get to the national team under the Stelio era, was there anyone you were a little bit starstruck or looked up to, whether it was Durden or Koski or I'm trying to think who the left sides would have been? Was that be like Terry Martin or who were you playing with on the outside then? Yeah, it was like Durden, Sebastian Rouet, Terry Martin, I think Chris Wolfenden. He was like Libro outside. Dan Lewis, Sanheim was in there. He's at the end of his career. That's a, we're pretty thin on the left side. <laughs> it wasn't like it wasn't like it is now, you know. They got like lots of talent on the left side. So yeah, it was those guys. But no, man, I hadn't seen or knew anything about these guys. I didn't. I, I was like just as you know strong and tall as, as them. So. If I had had more exposure to them and watched them on TV more or YouTube and stuff, yeah, for sure it would have been. But I wasn't back then. <laughs> Especially like I had a good foundation of skill, skill level because of university. I had already had three years of, you know, the best, pretty much the best coach you can have. And so I was, I wasn't, that's not a cocky statement. That's just, uh, I, did, I hadn't really seen them. I was meeting lots of them for the first time. In that summer, I wasn't involved in junior national team or youth programs growing up, really. So, and then, no, I didn't, yeah. Just looking back at, at your era, obviously, you should get a lot of credit for being a builder there. Because obviously, going through the Stelio era and then with Glenn starting, there was a time where the national team, like you mentioned, you played in a World Cup pretty early in your career. But there were times where we didn't qualify for World League, right? So, what were some well, things that... That, that, was, that was not a qualification thing. Oh, okay. that, was a, that was a money thing. I, I always get a little bit discouraged. Yeah, the national team is doing great and it's really strong. Uh, when I joined the team, we were like a top 10, top 12 team in the world. It's not like we were uh, not a competitive team. The, th the thing that had happened with the national team as it, as it went on to the later end of my career is the depth of talent, the full-time training center, the organization. And the team's ability to beat the top teams in the world. When I was on the team, like we could not beat like Brazil or Russia, Poland. Like we couldn't beat them. We we could play like one or two sets tight, and then we just couldn't. So, but it wasn't like we were a bad team. We had world world top world class players like Terry Martin, Durden, Haldane. You know, Scott Koski was a really good setter. So there's this big narrative that the team 
has improved so much over Glenn, and it has. But there's a whole lot more talent there, and there's a whole lot more funding. We're playing World League every year. I think my first, I joined the team in 03. My first World League was 2007. That's that's four summers without World League. That's crazy experience that you gain when you play World League every summer. Some some summers we had no matches. We didn't even play. We went on small little trips and we played in the Darsika event where we're playing against like Trinity Western would have a good chance at meddling at Narsikas with their university team. Like they it, it wasn't always uh, what people think and I think it's a little bit disrespectful to the guys who are on the national team when I started that all they're hearing now is how much better it is. And I've kind of been through both eras and I can't say that that is not better because it, it definitely is. And the team is stronger, but you chalk that up to talent and organization and playing in world league every year. Yeah. This is great to have your perspective. So when you say a money issue, was there an entry fee for World League? I know you had to have it on TV. Was that maybe the big hurdle to climb? Like, what was the, the big yeah, blocker? CBC. So, CBC, this is what I had heard. CBC would, in other countries, TV networks are bidding the Federation to put them on their channel. In Canada, I think we had to pay <laughs> CBC 250 grand or something. Don't quote me on these numbers, man. We had to pay to get put on TV, so it was a massive portion of our budget to play in World League. Plus, it was like five hundred grand to play in World League or something, just to because they got to pool together the prize money, right, for the winner, and you know, flights and it's just such an expensive thing to partake in. And later on in uh, my national team career, we own the podium became a big, huge fundraiser. And uh, honestly, beating some of the top teams got our Minister of Sport in Canada on board with our team. And I think our, I don't know the exact numbers with our funding, but it went way up. And the biggest thing that, you know, Glenn and, and everyone was always uh, talking about was we need to be in World League every year. We need to be our Nations League now. We need to be in that every year because that's like 12 guaranteed strong matches against all the best teams in the, in the world which is, you know, 12 more matches than we were getting the first six, seven years of my national team career. wasn't until I think, I can't remember, but I think we played in 07 and then we didn't play again until 2011 maybe. I don't know. So a lot of missed missed uh, matches and development for our program back then, but it was just financially based. It wasn't because the team wasn't good enough to play in World League. Awesome, man. This is great to hear your insight and get some clarification on this. Just to, yeah. just to jump over to your pro career real quick, because I think another foundation layer that university players are experiencing is like Riley Barnes and Stephen Marr are getting contracts that just weren't available for Canadians coming out. So with, with the foundation you guys put, what was your first contract offer? Like, how did you find the process of going pro in your era based on where the national team was? Because like you said, it was very competitive, but were you getting top offers coming out, uh, out of university to get your first pro deal? Yeah, I think uh, I did really well. Like I, I know some of the off. I know the offer that one of the top players in Canada is getting is his first deal um, this year, and I made way more than him my first year, <laughs> and that was <laughs> seventeen years ago. So I think I had a good first year deal, but you know the the. Finances in volleyball like ebbs and flows a lot and changes a lot between what league you're in and you know the it was great for me when I first played because the dollar the euro was at one point six so I was making sixty percent more when I converted it into Canada into Canadian money so it's awesome but yeah the in terms of the my first year so I played in Poitiers France my first year with Paul Durden uh, on a really good team, really, really strong team. We underperformed because we had a terrible coach. His name is Martin Teffer. I'll name drop him. I don't care. He was <laughs> awful. Dutch guy. Smoked six packs a day. 
didn't did a horrible job of developing me. But uh, in terms of recruiting, I had two offers my first year, two good offers, and one of them was uh, Mallorca, Spain, play on the island there. Back when they had a really good team, and uh, and the other one was at in uh, Poitiers, France, really good team too. And it was a little bit more money in France. And Paul was on the team and he was a veteran. And it was a good move for me to go there and see, obviously, his work ethic and how good a player he was. It was just the right choice for me. A little bit, a much better league too. So that's kind of why I went there. And, uh, yeah. And when you're going through... Then I got... got in in preseason training sprained my ankle and they didn't rehab me and I was injured until Christmas and it was like there's so many bad things about that year in France that if I look back on it now it's just such a joke and it would never happen now but this is 2004 and I think they didn't care about the athletes as much as they do now wow wow so As you progressed and started getting more contracts and going to different leagues, what did you start to evaluate? Like, did you want to play in top leagues? Did you want, when you played at the same club for two years, were you getting two-year deals or were you getting renewed? Like, how does that work? Because I think in volleyball, typically it's one year at a time, right? Yeah, most of the time it's one year. So I I signed a three-year contract to play in Russia. Only ended up staying there for two years. And that's the only multiple year contract I've ever signed. Everything else is one year, my entire career. Also, China and Brazil both chose to bring you back then. Yeah, they were one year, one year, and then uh, brought back for a second year. Nice. But yeah, there's some interesting uh, stuff that happened with those clubs. I was just curious, like when you're comparing different offers at different clubs, were you a guy who wanted? To play in the top league? Did you want to play yeah, for championships? So, like, what was the big thing that you were looking for with your agent to say, this is where I want to be this year? Yeah, so this has changed over the years. And I do, <laughs> me and my wife do this rating system too for clubs because we all always wanted to figure out where the best option was. <laughs> so we would, you know, pen and paper and we would have categories. So we would want like league, country, money, city. Food was a big thing. Lifestyle. So we'd have, you know, six categories. And then we would write down the, the possible offers that I had. And towards the end of my career, I didn't have so many offers or teams to pick from. But in the middle there, it was popping off pretty good. <laughs> I had some choices. And uh, then we would just rate them out of five and, and, and then kind of decide that way where we want to go. But in the beginning, like in the beginning, any player who doesn't say it's money, wherever you get the most money, is just such a liar. (laughs) It's money. It's always money. It's where you get the most money. And then if the money is very close and you're deciding between a place that isn't as friendly to foreigners, say like Iran, it's very difficult for Western players to go play there. I heard it's really not. I've never been to Iran, but it's tough. It's a tougher league to go to, say, or say you're deciding between Italy and Russia, and the money's similar. Like, it's, you're probably going to choose Italy <laughs> just for the lifestyle, the food, and weather. So it's almost always money based. I can see if you have a family and you're bringing them over. Maybe you take a bit less money if you know the club is going to take care of your family and do some do some things for you, you know, get you a bigger car, or get you a bigger house or apartment, stuff like that. But the overriding factor is always money. <laughs> nice, nice. And I'm trying to think of times when I took less money and probably I did at the end of my career just because my wife and I, just started to really enjoy the lifestyle because we knew it was kind of coming to an end. So we would do, we would never accept the apartment that the club gave us. My last, my last six, my last six or seven years, we found our apartments and just either the club paid for them or 
we had to pay a little bit ourselves. When you're overseas, you spend so much time in your apartment and you're there for eight eight months. It sucks if you're living in a place you don't like coming home to. So we learned that. Yeah, we just, we wanted to be able to do uh, trips, you know, whenever you have time off, you want to be able to like go explore. And so kind of the target changed a little bit later in my career. It wasn't always just wanting cash. We wanted to have a good time when we were overseas. And we did. Our last our last six or seven years were some of the best best seasons that we had by far. Nice. Yeah, that's great to hear your insight. Uh, we actually just had Gavin on the show, and he mentioned one of the perks foreigners get in the Korean League is like basically a translator and like a problem solver if anything comes up. I'm wondering when you were playing in Russia or some of the Asian countries you played in where language was a challenge, did you ever have access to a translator or how did you navigate those situations? Yeah, Young Jay. I had Young Jay in uh, Korea. Didn't know anything about volleyball, but somehow he got the job as a translator. So I'm trying to explain volleyball things to him and he's trying to translate it from English to Korean to Korean volleyball language, it was just a disaster. <laughs> Again, like when I played in Korea, it was the second year they had had foreigners there. So they were just ironing it all out. Now it's like streamlined and perfect. <laughs> when I look back at in Korea, we had a sweet training complex that had a golf simulator. I didn't even use the golf simulator once. And to think of not doing that now is crazy. I'd be in there every day. <laughs> Like, I can't believe I didn't use that thing. Now, I just remembered that because I have a picture of me standing in it, but with no club and not hitting any balls. <laughs> it's crazy. But yeah, no, I had a translator in, I had a legendary translator in China. Little John, we called him. <laughs> we yeah, I said, we invited him to our wedding. Oh, nice. He was this memorable. He was six foot nine. 325 pounds. He was basically a Chinese shack <laughs> with Yao Ming feet. He had like broken ankles. He was a former volleyball player. He actually, so he learned English because he played in some NAIA, NAIA school in Missouri, I think. So he learned English that way and then was just puttering around Beijing volleyball team, I guess. And then when they decided to hire foreigners which was again like uh, me and Salvador and Steve Brinkman were some of the first foreigners to go play in China they had this guy who spoke English and who played volleyball and so he got the job and he's still the translator today like uh, seven eight years later and uh, just a legendary guy called home runs in baseball, long shots. He had no ligaments in his fingers. He could bend every single finger back to the, the oh. top of his hand. His nail could touch the, the palm of his hand. It's sick. Oh. And he would fall down just walking down the street because he had the most severe bone spurs in his ankles from years of overtraining, not resting, and not lifting what weights and being you know, a huge guy. Wow. Wow. Yeah, he, he's funny. Anyone who played in China for Beijing knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> so when you were when you were at your top, I'm just wondering, like, you've played on teams with Wallace or Durden, or I think you had a year with Gavin and Gord when you were in Poland. Like, was there any yeah. teammates who helped raise your game? Like, when you were really dialed in at your top, was there anyone you liked going at in practice or anyone in the league that you liked going at? Because when you're playing at that high level, there's got to be, like, is there a respect or a rivalry with certain players around the league? Or even if you're going at dirt in every day in practice, do you start to get at them a little bit? Or In terms of practice, like maybe when I was a bit younger, I was like more concerned with, you know, how... Well, when I was really young, I was a ter terrible at practice. I, I wasn't good. My stats were bad. I didn't care. I just wanted to play in the games. And then... But it wasn't like I was going at guys in practice. I just, I don't know, I just did, wasn't as motivated to practice. Which is weird because you're younger and more energetic, I guess. And then, but I don't know what it was. Then I just kind of 
matured, I guess, as a volleyball player and understood that practice is really important and you can hone your skills there and you can try things and, you know, it helps you prepare for the games and, and got a, a, a lot better at practice later on in my career. And then towards the end, I was like, I've done this so much. This is my 15th year. I can't do it anymore. Like it's so it's so boring and repetitive that I would just kind of get after it a couple times a week <laughs> and just be ready for the games. So just because it's like so many reps, so many reps, it's just like kind of. I was thinking, man, we we're getting paid to just practice and wreck our bodies. Like I know how to play. Let me just make sure I can still jump, and I don't need a million reps. And so that was kind of where I was at near the end end of my career. But yeah, in terms of going after it in practice, no, I wasn't. I wasn't one of those guys. Was there ever a, a moment you felt like you had to add something to your game? Like I'm trying to think, maybe the the BIC wasn't as popular when you were coming through university, or maybe the faster sets to the outside. Like, did you ever feel a challenge to to add and level up stuff to your game? Yeah, always. Like, I think I was just always trying to be an all-around player. I wanted to be good at everything. When I was younger, like I, I really struggled with receiving. I was playing left side, but I just wasn't that great of a receiver. Just taking too many aces, not sure of myself. And then uh, I think I got really good at receiving. I think I was one of the better receivers on the national team for a long time. And so that was an instance. But, I mean specifically things that I was trying to add to my game. No, I don't think so. Maybe even more, more consistent server, but I mean, who doesn't want to do that? It's not like this year I'm going to become a much better server and you just go out and do it. You have to have some sort of natural talent too. Like there's <laughs> everyone wants to bomb their serve. Just not everyone can, you know? So it's hard to, to really, just pick a, a specific skill each year and say you want to get better at that. I was never really kind of a goal-setting guy, kind of like in that way. I was just trying to maintain my physicality and make sure I could still run and jump and play defense and and uh, have a good time doing it. Yeah, did you ever think of goal-setting in terms of results? Like when, when Rio came about, like in that cycle, were you guys thinking like, we're, we're going to talk about this a lot. We're going to write it on the whiteboard. Like this is going to be something that's that's a goal for the program. Like, yeah, that we we did a lot of sessions. We had a really great uh, Kyle Paquette was our uh, sports site guy. He was awesome. We had big long meetings before Rio, and uh, he was good because he didn't make it the traditional boring uh, session where you know, close your eyes and let's take deep breaths and think, no, we had like real conversations and, and we set real goals. And, and so he was really good, but I wasn't an individual goal setter. Maybe in the back of my head, I had specific or certain goals that I wanted to achieve. Mainly that just meant it was all winning championships because I started winning some titles and then it got addictive and I was, I was more, pissed if we didn't win versus like my own individual performance uh, I just because I want to get more and more titles and so as a, as a, the, my pro career went on that was like a big focus for teams I picked and and you know the whole season the drive was always just to win the title at the end Awesome. Yeah, that, that's good to hear. And I think the, the last dance did a good job like showcasing how Michael Jordan was able to have these goals, but there was always like an action applied to it. So I'm wondering, like you mentioned practice, like you always didn't get up for practice, but were there little things you were doing like getting your diet right, getting your sleep right? Like what were some things you were trying to do to make sure that you would have an opportunity to play for a championship? Uh, I think you're barking up the wrong tree with me <laughs> for that. You're not going to get a good answer, especially when like my wife and I were enjoying the lifestyle later on. Like I, I wasn't taking any like special steps. I think a big thing for me was 
really lucky to not have any injuries. I think I went really hard in the weight room. I think I was one of the stronger guys on all my teams. And whether that helped me in terms of injury prevention or or not, I don't know. But I think uh, not not uh, getting injured throughout my whole career, like major injury, never having surgery, that really helped me and helped me in the eyes of other clubs. Like, oh, here's a durable guy. You know, he can not on him. He's not gonna. He's not gonna miss half the season with an injury. So now I forgot the question. <laughs> Are you just? <laughs> what was it? I was just asking like what your prep would be, but it doesn't sound like that was something you were leaning towards. So I'm just curious, are you like the ultra competitor that when the game's on, that's when you're going to fire up and be ready to go? No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. And people love this. I People love to talk about like, oh, he's such a competitive guy. Oh man, he has to win every drill. Like it's partly because of the last dance. Like everyone is just horny over competitive spirit and juices and <laughs> testosterone and stuff. And like, no, I wanted to play and and do well and have a little like style doing it and look good, play good kind of thing. And and then I just. No, I wasn't. I wasn't a crazy maniac about prep or, or, or training or getting this guy or killing him or, or anything like that. So let, and let's the, like and the diet prep or anything like nothing specific in my diet. <laughs> I, I play. I played at my whole career. Was pretty much played at like between ninety eight and a hundred kilos. You know, like. I, I can't think of when I was outside or under that. So I wasn't too worried about my diet because I was the same weight and I maintained my physicality almost my entire career. <laughs> Dropped off a bit at the end. Nice. So hopefully the listeners are learning. Like if, if you get on YouTube and watch some of your interviews, you're very genuine, very honest, and obviously doing this on the show as well. Is that something you valued or was that part of the territory of being Team Canada's captain? Because I've seen interviews where you've honestly said, like, that was embarrassing. We need to be better. Like, you were very genuine in, in your interviews. So did you find that that was something you enjoyed and you were just going to tell the truth? Or did Glenn kind of point you towards some PR training so you could clean it up a little bit at times? No, no, never, never any PR training for sure. Um, yeah, just, just speak the truth. And I always say, like, I feel bad for these major sports stars because nothing, they can't say what they really feel. They'll just get cooked. They'll just get burned at the stake. Like, really, they can't. And it, volleyball is such a small professional sport compared to, you know, NBA or NFL. But I really think that the media really pigeonholes these guys into not saying what they really feel. And either about the game or about social issues or just, you know, about their, even their own coach, right? They, they can't. So anyone who thinks that they're getting like a true, genuine uh, response to a question, there's always like a, I don't know what a, how, you, how to put it, like a veiled coating of, of PR or, or spin on it. That, that's kind of what I, what I thought about. I mean, because as players in the locker room, you share some things about how you're feeling and then you'll get interviewed. <laughs> you won't say the same things that you say in the locker room. No way. Because <laughs> you'll just you'll get roasted for it. I mean, any interview that I had, I, I wasn't, I wasn't like, Alexei Spiridonov level of, of nuts. Like that guy is just mental. But uh, I was just kind of speaking what I thought, and, and there was never any like ill intent or it wasn't calculated either. Definitely wasn't. And did any of the interview stuff or, or dealing with fans ever become a chore, or did you honestly enjoy it? Oh, like yeah. The way the FIVB does it is after every game. The coach and the captain have to go and do this painstaking interview with two journalists at it, <laughs> and they ask the dumbest questions, and you're sitting there, 
and it's just so bad. They should grab you. If they want to talk to any player, they should just grab him after the game as he's going down the tunnel and interview him, which they do at some events. But this formality of interviewing the captain and the coach in a big press conference setting, it's cringeworthy sometimes because of how few people are there and how <laughs> few questions. I, I wouldn't even, I would go to the press conference, have to sit there, stew after a loss and then not get asked any questions and just I'd have to give some remarks about the game and then they'd be like, okay, you're dismissed. Thank you. <laughs> and then you just walk off. You don't even get to say anything. Like any, any, you don't get to answer any questions. So that was one thing that stuck out to me as just completely ridiculous and something they should have changed. But that was the, that was the formality of it. And, uh, but I'm not complaining about having to be interviewed because honestly, I, I, my kind of anything I got at when I got asked to do some interviews or anything, I, I was always like, okay, can you send me a list of the questions? Cause the questions, I don't want to put you on the spot now, but the questions <laughs> were just so bad. I'm, I'm done playing now. So it's different, right? Like I don't, I can just kind of say whatever I want, but the questions were always just so boring and so just generic that I, I just oftentimes actually just decline the interviews and be like, no, it's okay. I, I don't want to thank you for reaching out. I'm good. And, uh, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. The, the, I forgot what we were saying again. No, this, a big rant. this is great. This, every time you answer a question, I'm just glad that we got you. And it makes sense that so many people were, were begging to get you on the show. I could see why you're a crowd favorite. Cause this is awesome. <laughs> That's sweet. So just to, to round back to your Olympics, like you mentioned, Kyle was there as the mental coach. Like, was this something yeah. Glenn was firing up for too? Like, what was the mood around the team? Because you guys were doing well at World League. Like, I think there was a Final Four there where there, there was the Russia game and all that. Like, we were definitely yeah. on the map, right? So yeah. was it the Olympics obviously wasn't a surprise for you guys. That was something that was a goal and laid out. Or, or how did you feel going through that process? Yeah, there was a lot of different things about the Olympics. A lot of, like, press and and I think I think Glenn had to do a lot of stuff for that. And the players, you know, he didn't want us to be distracted with all the hoopla about it. So, you know, it was uh, it was different than another summer, right? You could feel that it was much much bigger. There were lots of people filming our practice. We had interviews, and and then yeah, the the uh, selection of the team is a crazy story. Uh, very intense and, and emotional for a lot of people. So we had played in this. It was they had a tier two world league, and we were in tier two that year just because we were just outside of the top twelve, I think. The, the how they were doing nation league back then, and uh, we made it to the final four of that in Portugal and actually won that tournament, which was pretty cool. So we won the flight B division of world league. And, and that was really cool. We had already qualified for the Olympics, so it was a good way for us to, to cap off the Nations League or World League before we went to Rio. But then the, the announcement of the team was made in Portugal there after that tournament. So I think there were like, you know... 14 or 15 I think there were 14 players there but only 12 were going and uh, you know I, I didn't know if I was going I had I had no idea I uh, I had a really crazy summer that year because I had been on the team and gone on every trip my entire career and been you know one of the important members on the team since 2003 and 2016 summer rolls around and team is gearing up i'm coming back from brazil i guess i was in brazil at sada cruzeiro and i came back and glenn was taking the team to that qualifier in japan and he didn't even take me and uh he was like oh i just 
I feel like you're not in good enough shape to help the team in this long, hard tournament. And, you know, at that point, I knew that I wasn't probably going as a starter. So I kind of, I was like, well, if I'm not going as a guy who's playing in every match, then how can you say that I'm out of shape? You know, if I'm just playing as a sub, it's like a sub, you're the freshest guy out there. It's mentally tougher, right? Because you got to sit on the bench. And if you come in off, being a starter is easier than being a bench player because you get reps, you're going to be allowed to make mistakes and you're going to, you have a next game. But when you're on, when you're a bench player, you're expected to come in and change the whole entire game. So, you know, and if you don't, the coach subs you out again, right? But so when Glenn said that I was like not really in good enough shape or just wasn't, you know, he thinks a couple of other guys are playing better than me, which is fair, fair enough. Yeah, that was like a really tough moment for me. I, then I was just, my whole like psyche was messed up because I, I was thinking that I was really able to help the team for sure. And then... We had luckily we had World League that summer where I got to play in a lot of games and kind of just prove myself and and uh, had a pretty good World League. Went on all all the trips where like Glenn had kind of some of the guys he knew were going to go to Rio already. You know, like some of the top players at that point were kind of like filtering in and out because he didn't need to see them as much. You know, and. Uh, some of the guys who were on the bubble, I guess, were playing more in World League, and I did really well. And then flash forward to Portugal, we won the the final four there, and he announced the team in the in the hotel there, calling the guys in the room one by one. And uh, I was really lucky because my wife and my my mom were there for it, so um, got to give them big hugs and celebrate with them the hotel when i found out that i was going do you remember and, your uh, order in the interview because when we had jvd on the yeah, show he's talking number. oh okay so yeah so i was 15 so i was pretty late and were you counting the reactions of guys coming out of the room or like how what no, was your no anticipation one, leading no into that was around i was down i was actually down in the lobby restaurant with my mom and my wife i was with i was with adam simac and uh his mom was there too and we were just chatting, and 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 then one by one, and then some other guys were off. And the, there was a TV, I think, in the lobby there. Some guys around there, but yeah, no, I was I wasn't doing that counting thing. <laughs> that was just it was pretty pretty intense, I have to say. But it it felt good to get in that room, and then Glenn, you know, told me that I had earned it and that I was going. And that he was proud, and it was great. It was a really great moment. Then I got to share it with my with my mom and my wife. So it was one of the highlights of my career, definitely. Awesome, awesome. And I think one thing that might get overused in sports is just talking about, you know, the vet and the experience and all those things. So I'm wondering with you being in a leadership role with the national team, what were some actual actionable things that you could pass down? Like when a guy like Schwan joins the team, like are there any things you like to do to make guys feel comfortable or what are some actual leadership things that you could give real examples for? Uh, mine is lead by example. You know, I'm not going to talk your ear off. I'm not going to like say you're the greatest player in the world, but it's just mine totally was lead by example. I'm just, you know, show up. And that's kind of goes back to the thing I was saying before about practice. How I got much better at it. When you play pro volleyball, you practice a lot, like more than reasonable amount. Like it, it, it's it's to to an insanity level, and you have to manage your body to handle that because it's really crazy. But and I and I did. I got really good at that, and I was able to perform in practice and have the energy to play every day in practice. You know, I, I got much better at that. So my leadership skills were definitely just show up in the weight room, show up for practice early and, you know, get ready and just be ready to go and not, not treat it as just a, a waste of time. And, uh, yeah, in, in terms of instilling any, like, 
wisdom or anything on the young guys. Like I'm always open to, to talk to guys. I got lots of guys writing me on Instagram about contracts and where they should play. And I'm, I'm always an open book about that stuff. So I'm not going to sugarcoat it or, or tell you, you should do one thing or the other, but I, I can just go off my experience. And I guess I just have to say that I've had a very lucky, great long career really really proud of it i I did i played in so many amazing places and and made good money and made good friends and won a lot of titles it's just such a good experience and i wouldn't change really anything i wouldn't change anything at all wouldn't even change the the clubs that i picked and it's just it was just a really fun time Awesome, man. Just a couple more questions before I, you know, I've taken up yeah, a lot of your morning here. Uh, I love this. This is kind of fun to talk about this stuff because I don't, I don't do it. Ever. Awesome. I feel like we should get you back on. I don't think we've touched enough stories yet, but I'm just curious. Yeah. Um, now, as we're talking, I remember a lot of stories. Nice. Like they're nice. popping up about each year and what, what happened and drama and stuff like that. I'm wondering when you guys, you're, you're in the Olympics, you arrive, it's this big stage. There, there are some athletes we've had on the show who they admit they were kind of happy to be there at first. How was the mood around the, the club when you guys got there? Were you thinking we're going to be on the podium or was it kind of let's soak this all in? Um, we had trained a, a lot about that mentality going in. And I mean, it wasn't for me, it wasn't fathomable to win an Olympic medal. It just wasn't. It wasn't. Was I happy to be at the Olympics? Yeah. What I had said in the past, and I, I still say this, is like there's too much for volleyball. This is volleyball specific. This is not about other sports. But there's too much emphasis put on the Olympics and the glory of that for volleyball. Because, first of all, the qualification isn't fair. There's way better teams in Europe that have no chance of making it just in terms of, like, allotments of teams there's only 12 teams that go uh it's once every four years it's like it's put up on this huge pedestal for individual sport athletes and for other sports i i understand why it's like that but for volleyball we're playing major championships all the time world cup world championship is a crazy tournament i think it's 24 might even be 32 teams now it's almost a month long and like i always said it to win a world title is, is better than winning an Olympic gold, but it's the Olympic gold is the, like the Kodak moment, right? Like the guy on the, the guy, I have a friend from Brazil who won a title and there won Olympic gold in, in Rio. And there's like a Kodak or there's like a viral moment of him and Bruno, the setter, they're on the podium and they're just like bawling. And so that's part of, the allure of the Olympics. And I always thought it was unfair because you have really awesome players who never played in the Olympics. You know, I, I was a, I was a pretty good player and I didn't think I was ever going to go up in the Olympics. And then I hear everyone just, you know, Oh man, like, did you go to the Olympics? Like what were you there? And I don't always have to say no, no, but, I went to world championships. I won titles in Brazil and China. I made lots of money. I traveled around the world. Like there's other things than the Olympics. And, and that was frustrating being a Canadian athlete who wasn't an Olympian. Just, I think the guys on the team will concur. Like you meet someone who's not tapped in with volleyball and that, their first question oh did you go to the olympics so when we finally went yeah i have to say it feels good to say that to people oh yeah i went i went i was the captain of the team at, at rio we did really well so it does feel good to say that but it wasn't the ultimate goal for me and my career just because i kind of put it into that kind of perspective that i talked about like in terms of fairness for athletes. Yeah. But no, at the same time, it was pretty damn sweet. True. Uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a great event. 
No, this is this is awesome. Thank you for you know not leaving any details out and giving like genuine answers. This is this is awesome. Um, one other thing that always comes it's up easy with to you. talk about myself. <laughs> Probably not in face to face, but over the phone, it's much easier. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. One thing that keeps coming up with your name is just the, the shoe game, and I'm wondering, did you have a preference of what you wanted to play in? Like, did you like the Mizuno's? Did you want to wear? Jordans, Kobe's, Hyperdunks, like with you being pretty famous on social media with the shoe game, what is your go-to if you had to play a game today? What would you be rocking? Today, I would play in 2017 Flyknit, Hyperdunks, Pro, yeah, white, all white, nice. always all white. Anyone who wears black shoes, just you're dead to me. You have no <laughs> style. You want to look like you have lead on your feet? Like, I can't do it with the black shoes. I was always a white shoe guy. Made me feel lighter. I was already pretty heavy, so <laughs> wanted to look a little bit lighter on my feet. Yeah, I would play in those. But uh, a really good one from back in the day is Kobe 4. That was really, really good shoe for volleyball. Yeah, I think... The, the hyperduck lines are pretty good. I like the higher cut shoe because my ankles are just jello. So, yeah, I would say that if I had to play tomorrow, I would strap those on. I think I have a pair in my closet, too. <laughs> and but in specific 2017, like flying in ones, it was a really sweet model. Nice, nice. And I'm wondering, yeah. uh, Mizuno's been a partner of the national team, and I think they deserve respect because they've been with VC for so long, but it, it was required you had to wear those shoes, right? So when you went to your club team, did you ever stick with the Mizunos, or were you always looking to like switch to oh, your no, Nike? No, or? no, no, hell no. <laughs> hell no. <laughs> Mizuno is great because they gave us lots of shoes. I remember we could get as many pairs as we wanted. Unfortunately, I feel like the Mizuno model is made for females or lighter humans I, I could i could never get the support that i needed from them as soon as i left the national team the guys are all wearing whatever shoes they wanted so i was like choked about that <laughs> i don't know if how how that happened or what happened i think gavin snapping his leg in half that's something to do with it but they're like okay maybe we should let him wear like a full cushiony shoe but yeah, like it, I, I never found any like success with Mizuno or, or comfort. I did wear, oh, that's a lie. So I wore them with the national team. They had a couple good models, but I actually sourced for the Olympics. We went to Japan for Nations League, I don't know, a couple years before the Olympics and uh, met a Mizuno rep there. And I obviously got her name and number in her Facebook and was, you know, staying in touch with her throughout the years. And, uh, she came through big for us. I got, cause I just was like, I can't wear these Mizuno volleyball shoes. They're not strong enough for me. So I basically got some nice Mizuno Japanese, like demo model basketball shoes for the Olympics. I got a couple pairs of them and that's what I wore at the Olympics. So, much sturdier, like solid shoe. Then a couple of years later, uh, then I'm in uh, Rizovia playing, and I uh, got a. I, I hit her up on Facebook. I was like, "Oh, some of the guys really love Mizuno shoes, you know? Like, they, uh, do you think?" And I really need some to wear. And she said she ended up sending me a box of twelve pairs of them. <laughs> all in like various sizes i just gave a bunch to my teammates like it was incredible i felt like a actual sponsored athlete for the first time for the first time in my life still looking for sponsors though golf sponsors mainly but were yeah, there so any uh team canada guys that were jealous when you pulled out your pair and they're like whoa that wasn't in the catalog i didn't get an option for those well it was like me and then Blair caught on. He knew it was going on, and he was kind of in on that game too. So he <laughs> he knows who I'm talking about at Mizuno. Um, she's great, though, unbelievable. But yeah, I, I actually had another my agent, my in Brazil. There, he had a good connection with Mizuno too, and he got me some pretty funky colored ones. So I did 
wear those on occasion. I will admit. I forget the model name though, but they were pretty cool. Now, friend of the show, uh, Dimitri, he's an official here in Canada. He wants to know what the total counts up to because you're you're a collector, right? Like, if you had to ballpark it, what are you up to these days? Yeah, I have 450, but I think I've sold 100 or 150 uh, pairs on IG. Check out my sneaker selling page. Shameless plug here at size 13 and 14 <laughs> on Instagram. <laughs> um, yeah, so I just started selling them. Honestly, because I, they take up too much space, and I kind of just figured I'm trying. I'm not. I'm trying not to sell them for less than I paid, which makes me feel a bit better about selling them, you know. And then I kind of figured, like, you know, if I sell one that I really love for a big amount of money, uh, I can always just buy it back. <laughs> You know, if I really, really miss it. So I'm starting to clear house here. I think I've, I, I, I'm not quite sure, but I think I've sold like 150 pairs this since, I mean, kind of since I came back to Canada for good there. And uh, I guess it would have been July. Nice. So, yeah. Nice. We'll add that to the show notes. So these are all court shoes or do you have golf shoes for sale? Like I'm wondering like how big does your collection go? How, how much does it vary? It's... It's mainly Nike and Jordans with a little bit of Yeezy sprinkled in. Nice. Uh, some golf shoes, but I'm, I'm using those. I'm not selling them. But yeah, I. it was for a long time, it was a lot of basketball shoes and a lot of like unwearable basketball shoes. Like you, can't, you can't wear them with a pair of jeans or anything, you know, so they're just pretty much collecting dust. But increasing in value which is kind of nice i got a lot of bricks though like ones that are impossible to sell and there's no market for them so you gotta just hold on to them and see what happens yeah it might turn around you never know yeah it's fashion cyclical you know (laughs) everyone knows that one thing we're trying to make a tradition on the show is just to end with a funny story so you've already told several great stories i was wondering if you could leave us with a laugh before we let you go but just one before I was playing in Poland with uh, Gavin and Gord and it's Christmas and we get a bunch of days off. I think we get like four days off and my wife's brother's visiting. He'll, he'll remain nameless, but you guys can figure out who it is. Anyways, we, we decide all oh, for Christmas. We're going to go, we're playing in Zeshov, uh, just in southeastern Poland, really cl- close to Ukraine. And the big thing that a lot of people do there is they go to Lviv in Ukraine because it's this crazy, just kitsch, dirt cheap town, city actually. It's a big city and it's just an incredible place to go. And so we packed up ready to spend Christmas in Lviv, Ukraine, which is just so incredibly random. And the thing about this town is it's like, is it B&M or S&M? Anyways, it's like a bondage sex city. And like it's pretty risque. So first thing we have to drive there, right? So we get in my club car. My name's all over it, branding. And the thing to do, and you don't want to drive your car there. I don't know why. It takes forever to cross the border. So what you do is you go to these, you, you drive right to the border and you park your car. And... Uh, you walk across the border and then take a gypsy cab into Lviv. It's like a 45-minute cab ride from the border. And so we pull up to the border and it's just like flea market, shady businesses, like all huts. It's, it kind of looks like a homeless encampment, but they're actually businesses. And I'm pulling in with my club car. It's so embarrassing. And I'm just trying to find a place to park. And we find one and throw the guy some, I don't even know how many slotties. I was like, we're going to be gone for four days, half expecting my car to be like, like tires gone, windows smashed. Like there's no way my car is still going to be there. It's the middle of winter, right? It's sitting there for four days. Anyways, we park it, walk across the border, take a gypsy cab into Lviv. And we start, you know, what do you do when you're in Ukraine? You, you drink vodka. The vodka's pure. It's nice. goes down easy. <laughs> and 
next thing you know, we're in this like S and M bondage club on Christmas Day, and with my wife's brother, little innocent kid, and uh, we're pretty loose at this point, and. Yeah, well, we didn't really know what we were getting into, so we're downstairs, and our server, if that's what you could call her, she's in leather pants and her leather booty shorts and knee-high boots, and she has a whip, and thankfully, she kind of clued on that, like, me and my wife were together, so her main mission was to torture the brother-in-law, and... uh <laughs> She proceeded to whip him, abuse him verbally and physically. Like, this stuff would not fly in North America. There would be lawsuits. She she ties him up to a chair, hands behind his back, rips open his uh, American apparel button-down shirt, and, like, melts wax on his nipples from a candle. And my wife and I are just dying. Like we, he he's literally like, uh, uh, help me guys. What do I do? What do I do? And like, we're, we're drunk. Right. So we just howling with laughter. Like, yeah, it's awkward, but hilarious at the same time. And I'm just thinking, Oh, he's never going to forget Lviv. He's never going to forget Lviv. And, uh, basically the night ends with him, you know, waxing the hair off his nipples and uh, and us running out of the place getting whipped on the stairs up there and uh yeah he's a devoted eastern european traveler ever since that day he's been back about 10 times i'm not even kidding not to Lviv specifically but eastern europe wow so, yeah, yeah it was pretty pretty nice pretty memorable christmas i got vids too if you don't believe me i got vids <laughs> I don't think they've ever seen the internet, though. No, no, we. I don't think we'll be posting those. But that's that's one of the better yeah. stories. That's that's the perks of being a pro athlete and being overseas for Christmas. I guess. Holy. Yeah, that was a unique experience. I, I, I really uh, did not expect it to escalate that quickly, but <laughs> it did. No, it it really it would it can't happen in North America. You need those unregulated countries for stuff like that to happen. For sure. Well, man, this is this has been great. I've taken a, a lot of your time here. I, I want to thank you so much for sharing all the details and even correcting some rumors out there in the VC culture. So it's great to hear your perspective. And thanks for being so honest and genuine with your answers. I definitely learned a lot, and, and I bet our listeners did too. So thanks for taking the time. Yeah, no worries.